0: The scripture reading this evening is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. If you remember, last November we began a series on building the Christian home. And that was supposed to be a, a baptism series uh, to go to for on the occasion of baptism. A few weeks ago we had a baptism and we... Didn't have a sermon in this series, and so I wanted to uh, have this sermon tonight and um, prepare what I had been preparing and preach it tonight. And I think going forward, uh, we we might not reserve this series just for baptisms, but we might want to return to it more frequently as the Lord leads. Um, because I'm excited about this series. And uh, I think the themes, the topics in this series are very timely and practical for us. So, Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. This is also the text, and so I will not reread the passage. This is on the sixth day of the creation week. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help, meet for him, suitable, fitted for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature... That was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs. And closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man. Made he a woman. And brought her unto the man. And Adam said. This is now bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our first sermon in this series on building a Christian home, we saw what the foundation of a Christian home is. The foundation... Of a Christian home. Is that we live out of this reality. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. And then we understand. Very intimately tied in with that. The foundation of a Christian home. Is Jesus Christ. And God building a home in and through Jesus Christ, and on the foundation of Jesus' righteousness and His full salvation. But the point is, God builds the home. God designed the home. God provides the blueprints for the home. God provides the tools for the building of the home. God provides the building materials for the home. We can even say God provides the will to build and the act of building also. I think one of the most memorable truths from that first sermon in the series, at least for me, was this. One of the experiences that all God's people have when they look back on their life is this. They look back on whatever home they had... Whatever came forth out of their home, they look back at everything and their conclusion is, the Lord builds the home. Whatever, whatever we have here that's a blessing, whatever we can rejoice in, whatever is praiseworthy, it's of the Lord. And except the Lord build the home, all our labor is in vain. That's true to our very experience. And in our laboring, as we seek to establish and maintain homes that are pleasing in the Lord's sight, we must constantly be looking to Him for help, for strength, and for His blessing. We must have a posture of humility, a posture of utter dependence upon the Lord, seeking always for the grace and the blessing that's found in Jesus Christ. Now, what, of, what all of this implies, what all of this means is that we must also be following God's design, God's blueprints for building a home. To follow our own ideas, our own vision for how a house is to be built. It's going to lead to inevitable disaster, a dilapidated and even a condemned, even a wicked house. We must follow God's blueprints for the home. That's what we endeavor to do in the next few sermons in this series, to look at the blueprints for a Christian home. And the the first question we can ask as we think about the blueprints is this. What is God's blueprint for marriage? That's where it starts, marriage. What is God's blueprint for marriage? And then we can go on and we can ask other questions. What is God's blueprint for husbands, What is God's blueprint for wives? What is God's blueprint for fathers? What is God's blueprint for mothers? What is God's blueprint for children? And these are the kinds of things that we hope to cover in these next sermons in the series. And if we have two sermons on each one of those topics, then we'll have at least ten sermons just on the blueprints of a Christian home. So we're looking here at the basics of of building a Christian home. And this evening, we have our first, ma- our first sermon on marriage. We're looking at God's blueprints for marriage, part one. We take as our theme, blueprints, embracing marriage as God instituted. Blueprints, embracing marriage as God instituted. We look at three things. First, we see how marriage is a divine institution. Then we look at how marriage is a, a primary, the primary relationship. And then third, we see how marriage is a glorious picture. So understanding that it is God who builds the home, and understanding that a home must be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, this now is where we start. We start with marriage. And when we talk about marriage, the first thing we must recognize is that marriage itself belongs unto the Lord. Marriage is a divine institution. Marriage is a creation ordinance, just like we looked at the Sabbath day as a creation ordinance. Marriage is something that God himself created and instituted on, in the creation week, on the sixth day of the creation week. That is fundamental, to get that straight. And that simple confession puts us as Christians at odds with the world, ...in everything that the world teaches about marriage. The world opposes the idea of evolutionism, the religion, the worldview of evolutionism. And what evolutionism teaches is that marriage is something invented by man. Marriage, according to the world, is a social construct. Something that man himself has invented. Something that society itself has constructed. So that it's a social construct... Something that man built. And as such, marriage is also something that man can destroy and really do with what he wants. In fact, today the world is saying that while marriage might still be beneficial to some, man is at present in his evolution evolving really beyond the need for marriage and the family. And that's why the world is behaving the way that it's behaving. People living together outside of marriage. So that marriage is redefined to whatever you really want it to be. And people can divorce and remarry as they see fit. And people are acting this way because they have rejected the truth about what marriage actually is. And of course today people don't just treat marriage as a social construct. They treat all kinds of things as social constructs. Because there ultimately is no truth because there is no God. Even gender itself is a social construct in the eyes of many. Just something that man made up. And that's why you have this hyper-sexualized culture that we live in, because there are no rules and there's no reverence for the sanctity of sexuality and the sanctity of marriage. And the world is in misery, and families are in misery because the world has rejected God and God's instructions and regulations for marriage. What we need to appreciate in our own homes and families, perhaps more than ever before, is that marriage is a divine institution. Marriage Belongs to God. God created it. God designed it. God designs the principles of marriage. God regulates marriage. And it is God who makes even the marriage bond. It is God who joins two together. And as creatures of God's handiwork, our calling is to honor God by honoring His glorious institution of marriage. God is the one with whom we have to do Our lives are not our own, to do with as we see fit. Our lives are to be devoted to God. That's true in single life. That's true as young men and young women. And that's true with regard to our whole view of marriage and the marriages that God has established. Our marriages must be established, governed by God's rules. Now in order to learn about God's institution of marriage, we turn to Genesis chapter 2. Because here in Genesis chapter 2, the passage we read, we have God's institution of marriage. These words we read, these few verses that we read are very significant words. And that's even demonstrated by the fact that these words are quoted at least three times in the New Testament, very directly. On the first occasion where they are quoted, they are quoted by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is asked about the legitimacy of divorce. And you remember what he did when he was faced with that question. Moses said, we can uh, can separate for any occasion. What do you teach? And Jesus says, have ye not read? Aren't you familiar with Genesis chapter 2? Have ye not read? that he which made them in the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put Asunder. And that passage in Matthew 19 is very significant, not only for its teaching regarding divorce and remarriage, but because Jesus teaches that what God's Word says here in Genesis 2 is authoritative. Jesus goes back to Genesis 2 and says, what does Genesis 2 say? Genesis 2 says that marriage is a permanent, lifelong relationship between one man and one woman, and that's how God designed it and instituted it. Now, you have this passage being quoted also in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Timothy 2. And in both those passages, the Apostle Paul goes back to Genesis 2 to explain how we are to view marriage and how we are to view the relation between man and woman. In the beginning, God created marriage. In the beginning, God created Adam. That's where it starts. On the sixth day of the creation week... God created Adam. God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. But what is very striking is what he says after. After God created Adam, God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And that's striking. God creates Adam, God creates man. God creates man in the image of God, in righteousness, holiness and true knowledge. God creates Adam in covenant relationship with God as his friend, servant, God creates Adam as king of creation. And yet when God created Adam halfway during the 6th day of creation, this is what God said. Not good. It is not good. That the man should be alone. It is not good that Adam be alone. Literally, it is not good that the man should be in his separation. Adam, as perfect and upright as he was, he was living as one who was separated from someone else who belonged with him. There was a lack in Adam. Adam was not complete and this was not good. And so God said, I will make him and help meet for him. Now that is interesting. Think about it. God could have easily created Adam and Eve simultaneously at the exact same time, in the exact same way. Create Eve here, create Adam there, immediately bring them together. After all, God knew beforehand, He knew that it was not good that the man should be alone. It's not like He had to look at Adam and then it dawned on Him, it's not good for him to be alone. No. He knew. But God didn't do things that way. And he didn't do things that way because God is drawing our attention to this whole event of not only how he created Eve, but also of how he created, designed, and instituted marriage. He's teaching us about marriage in these verses. First, God causes Adam to name all the animals so that Adam feels his lack. God's Helping Adam, if we may use that language. He's teaching Adam. Adam feels his own loneliness. Then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He takes one of his ribs, and from the very flesh and blood of Adam, God makes a woman. And then God takes the woman, and he brings her unto Adam. And while there is so much going on in these verses, more than we have time for, the one thing that we need to point out in the sermon this evening is this. Right there, at the end of verse 22, right there when God brings Eve to Adam, you have God instituting marriage. Why all this detail? Why does God do it this way? Why does God give us this information? He's doing it to teach us that he created marriage. He's doing it to teach us what marriage is. To teach us that marriage is a special ordinance of God. A special institution with special rules. It is a special feature of God's glorious creation. So that even today, 6,000 years later, we can go back to God's word and learn not only about creation... But also learn about how God created the institution of marriage. And now, if we do take the time for a moment and pick out a few things about what God is teaching us about marriage, we notice that there are a few very significant things here. First, what we see in this passage is the dignity of the woman. Sadly, when some people think about marriage, they they immediately think about the headship of the husband, and and then they have this idea that somehow the husband is superior to the woman. And that's folly, because what we see in this passage is that God made the woman from the man. God did not make the woman from another different clump of dirt, and then then make her, and and then put her under the man's authority. No, no. That's not the essence of what marriage is. No, but when God created Eve, we could say God took even greater care in his creation of Eve than he did of Adam. Because God took Eve not out of the dust of the earth, but God took Eve from the very living flesh and blood of Adam. And he formed a new creature out of the flesh and blood of Adam himself. And that's highly significant. That fact itself emphasizes the, the intimate unity between Adam and Eve. They are one flesh. And by this action, God was even showing Adam that he should love Eve as his own flesh because she is his own flesh. In the way that God created Eve, God was showing the natural love that should exist between a husband and wife in marriage. They are one flesh, and it's utter folly to pit yourself against your spouse, because in marriage you are one flesh. In addition, creating Eve from Adam highlights in a particular way, in its own unique way, that Eve was made in the image of God. In chapter 1, it said very explicitly, in the image of God made he them. Male and female. Made he them in the image of God. But, but here, there, I think there's something added, we, we can say. Eve is not somehow inferior in her creation to Adam. No, Eve was made from Adam. They are equal in dignity. Equal in value. Equal in glory. They are equally made in the image of God. In fact, we could even say that Eve was the crowning work of Creation. Because without her, things were still not good. Without her, the man was in his separation. He was incomplete. And the main point is, Adam and Eve were made for each other. And they are equal in dignity, equally made in the image of God. The only difference between Adam and Eve is this. To these two people, equal in value, equal in dignity, are are given two different callings, two different roles. One was made and shaped and designed for one role, one calling. The other was shaped and designed and made for another role. Adam was created as a male. Eve was created as a female. And even though they are equal in value and and in dignity, they're also different. And God created them differently for their respective callings so that as male and female... As husband and wife, they would be completely compatible with each other. And they would complement each other perfectly. Because without the other, they're lacking. And together, carrying out their respective callings, their callings are honorable and full of dignity. That's how God made it. So that he said at the end of the sixth day, it is very good. And we will explore all the different parts of this in future sermons, the calling of a husband, the calling of a wife, what those roles are, as we look at the building of a covenant home. But the point is, this is even what God had in mind when He created Adam and He created Eve. God fashioned them just the way that He fashioned them so that He could create the institution of marriage. So that there would be this institution and God did that exactly when he finished creating Eve and then he brought her to the man. That was marriage. And he was, did, he was working all... This is God's inscrutable wisdom throughout all six days of the creation week, you see it. But now here in a particular way, creating Adam, creating Eve so that he could create marriage. One man, one woman, male, male and female, different from each other, yet perfectly compatible with each other, for each other, designed for each other, brought together by God to live in a one flesh relationship for life. That's God's institution of marriage. Now there's really so much that could be said if we, we would dive into the finer details of this account in Genesis chapter 2, but what I want to do right now is make some applications. ...for our lives. In our day and age... ...I think the young people might really be asking themselves... ...I had these questions when I was a young person and young adult... ...why? Why all these rules for marriage? Why can't young people have sex before marriage? Why is marriage for life? If one spouse commits adultery... ...why can the other spouse divorce... But not remarry. Why all these rules? Why all these rules for marriage? The answer is. Because marriage belongs to God. This is not a human institution. This is a divine institution. And God is the one who sets the rules. I think this is where we are sometimes unaware of how affected, how influenced we are by the culture around us. As I said, I remember having these questions and I, I didn't have the answer in, the, in my youth. Why can't a man have more than one wife? <coughs> and the reality is, if evolution is shaping your worldview, the answer you're going to get is this. We make the rules. So don't be surprised if, if soon enough you can have one more, more than one wife. Or you can be married... To a, a child. And pedophilia is, is okay. And, and bestiality. Because we make the rules. Right? Society makes the rules. The government makes the rules. And if, and if we don't like the rules that we've made, well, we can change the rules. And ultimately, the answer is, I make the rules. Everyone makes their own rules. And you see, that's the height of rebellion. Single people who live this way with their sexuality... Married couples who live this way with their sexuality, we make the rules. They're expressing the height of rebelling against God. And we must look at ourselves and say, we even have this inclination. I make the rules. We make the rules in our marriage, right? Whatever we as husband and wife agree to, that's the rule. Or maybe, whatever I as husband decide, that's the rule and then our attitude is no better than the world around us. No, marriage is God's. This marriage, our marriage is God's. And we must follow his blueprints. If we're going to have a home that fears the Lord, we're going to have to follow his blueprints first of all, well, not first of all, but we're going to have to follow his blueprints for our married life as husband and wife. That's where it starts. And our whole perspective on marriage needs to be thoroughly biblical. That's where the blueprints for a godly home start. With a marriage relationship that submits to God's design and God's will for marriage. And again, there is humility that is needed. This is the posture in the Christian home. Except the Lord build the house. We labor in vain that build it. And these are God's blueprints Marriage is His institution, and we must live in marriage as He commands. And then we need to remember this too. It's not just about us. Not only does God make rules for marriage, and, and it's focused on us, but, but God has His own purposes with the institution of marriage and with our own marriages. God's purpose with marriage is not just to give us earthly joy and happiness, Although that is a very great blessing and, and uh, the care and the goodness of God to, to those in the married state. But God's purpose is also to showcase Himself. Even in creation, that's His point, to, to prepare the way for Christ. And to even have in marriage an amazing, astonishing picture of God's own love for His bride, the church. God's purpose with marriage is that our own marriages reflect the kind of covenant faithfulness and love that exists between Christ and His church. And even in that way, even to taste and experience His love for the church. God's rules for marriage are not random. They're not capricious. They are good they are rules that serve for our protection and our care. I taught the catechism students Monday night about this. Why no sex before marriage? Because God loves you. And God's caring for you. And He wants to protect you. And these kinds of things. Sexual intimacy is, is so, speaking off the cuff here, so powerful. Such an such a intimate, powerful thing that, that it's, it's use is only safe in a covenant relationship in which you are committed to each other for life. So God's looking out for our safety. He loves us. But, but that's not the only thing, that they're for our protection and, and for our good, the rules of God for marriage, but they're also serving His purposes in Jesus Christ. And then we can take satisfaction in our marriages with that reality in mind. God even has His purpose in this relationship to bring glory to His name. In this institution. Well, there's much that could be said regarding the institution of marriage. I want to move on and I want to narrow in on one particular aspect of the institution of marriage, and that is this. When God joins a man and a woman together in marriage, that relationship becomes the primary relationship among all earthly relationships the marriage relationship, as God instituted it, is the primary relationship among all earthly relationships. We see that in verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Notice especially the first part of that verse. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. This is the blueprint, part of the blueprint for building a Christian home. This is part of the, part of God's blueprint for the institution of marriage that when you get married and you start building a Christian home, you leave father and mother and you cleave to your wife. And what that means is that marriage is the primary relationship in your life. First, the calling is to leave father and mother. Now, that doesn't mean that when we get married, we suddenly abandon our parents, or even that we have to separate ourselves from them geographically, move away from them. Sometimes to honor our parents, we even have to live close to our parents to help them, to help take care of them, perhaps. But to leave father and mother means that your relationship with your parents radically changes so that you establish an adult relationship with them you are no longer under the authority of your parents in the same way that you were as a child and teenager you are not dependent on your parents in the same way that you were when you lived with them you establish yourself financially, you are not slavishly dependent on their approval and their affection and their counsel as before it even means that you do not allow your relationship with your parents to come into your marriage and affect your marriage. Sometimes that can be a problem, even, especially early on in marriage for both husbands and wives. right? Husbands and wives who are so used to how their parents' marriage worked that they now try to impose that upon their own marriage. So that sometimes you have a husband who even wants his wife to be more like his mother. Or you have a wife who wants to change her husband so that he's more like what her parents want him to be. And this whole time, the husband and wife are not leaving their father and mother and establishing their own relationship. It's still like they want those old relationships to continue unchanged. So maybe the the husband still wants to be mommy's boy. And the wife is still being ruled by the dictates of her own parents. And now you get all kinds of division and strife. And it's, it's not right. It's simply not fair. You're not married to your mom. And you're not married to your parents. And the way that you're acting in the holy institution of marriage is not honoring it. As God designed it. Leave father and mother. And cleave unto your wife. And so second, the calling is to cleave to your spouse. And the word cleave means to cling to something. It means to hold it close, to protect it with your life. In Ephesians 5, when Paul quotes this passage, Paul uses a word that means to be glued to. It's the same idea, to be glued to your spouse. You're together, you're one flesh. You don't have your own thing going on because you're going down life's pathway together. This is a permanent, lifelong, one flesh relationship. And the attitude then should be this, my marriage comes first in my relationships with others. I first want to be a good husband, even before I'm a good son. I first want to be a good wife, before I'm a good daughter, right? I want to be a good daughter, but but this is my primary relationship. I want to honor God's institution of marriage. I want to make this my primary relationship, even as God designed it that way. That's the attitude we should have. This applies even to children. If the Lord should give us children, yes, we want to be good parents. But how often isn't the temptation to be so wrapped up in the children that we're not even cleaving to our own spouse anymore? And, and that's not what the children need. That's not how God designed things, that that we cleave to our children. If you want to be a good parent, God says, first be a good spouse. And that's where many people today are getting it wrong. Don't cleave unto your children. Cleave unto your spouse. Work on that relationship. If you want to be a good father, then first be a good husband. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. Oh, look at how wonderful of a husband I am. And yet I treat my spouse like dirt? Or, or I neglect this relationship? I, I, I'm picking and choosing? Why am I doing this? Is it easier? And in, in addition to that, right, where's the gospel in our family? Show the children Christ in the church. Show your children what it means to lay down your life, to be loving and gracious, to be forgiving in married life. I think this is a great danger even for us in the church. We we see it in the world around us, people prioritizing their children, maybe even prioritizing their parents, and frankly people prioritizing themselves above their marriage relationship. And how often isn't that motivated by the fact that I find this easier to do? And it creeps into the church. We can so easily take the world's marriages as as the blueprint for how we should be living. And then maybe we don't appreciate how much work this marriage takes to be a reflection of Christ in the church. That's going to be a challenge. We need God's grace more than we realize, perhaps. And it it is easier to just focus on the children or focus on the parents than than taking care of of the first thing that needs to be taken care of. That's an occasion for self-examination. Where have I, and this is a word for me, where have I been prioritizing other relationships before my marriage? You know, some people get married and think that they're still going to be able to hang out with their buddies on Friday nights. And they think they'll still be able to go on those hunting expeditions, just like they did when they were single. Right? The guys hanging out with the guys, the gals with the gals, and, and we get the best of both worlds, just like, like it was before married. Nothing changes. And and the attitude then is still this independent attitude. No. Marriage changes all of that. You're no longer twain. You're one flesh. Stop living for yourself. And start living for the sake of the marriage God has established. Now this doesn't mean we can't do things. But the point is our whole approach... Our whole perspective changes. This marriage relationship, this is special. This is primary. We are a one flesh relationship. And that is unique. So we follow God's blueprints for this marriage. What this also means is that parents need to prepare their own children for when they get married. Parents, if you're looking out for your children's good, this is going to be your goal. Raise them and train them so that when they become adults and when they leave home and marry, they know that they need to prioritize that relationship. Raise them and train them so that they are equipped to be adults. Train your sons so that they can act like a faithful and godly head in their marriage, pouring themselves into caring for their wives and their families. Train your daughters so that they are ready to make their husbands and their families the main focus of their lives, to pour themselves into these things. So we leave father and mother and we cleave unto the spouse God has given us. These are the blueprints for marriage. These are the the blueprints for building a Christian home. Now, I think there's also a word here for those whose spouses have abandoned them. Or whose spouses have been taken to glory. And you are busy raising your children on your own. First of all, to the congregation, I would say, appreciate the challenges. Every, every day, in and out, there is that reality. Appreciate the challenges and be a help. The way that they have is difficult. And second of all, to those families where they experience this, I would say, God has a special eye for you. God cares for the widow. God cares for the abandoned and God is greatly honored by your desire to serve him. And God will certainly hear your cries and tend to your needs. God knows the difficult way you have. And God will never leave you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is jealous over his children whom he leads in difficult ways. Now I intend to expand on these ideas more in the next sermons in this series, I want to relate, especially in the next sermon, marriage to the raising of children and a godly seed. We'll do that more next time. But, but what I've said also leads us now into the third point of the sermon. There's so much application we could make, but we have to get to Christ. And we have to get to Christ and his church in a special way, because that is what explains everything. <clears throat> Why are all there these rules for marriage? Why is there this deep intimacy? Why is there this priority placed on the marriage bond? Why are there these blueprints? Well, not only because God is a God of order and God is good, but because God has designed marriage to be a glorious picture and a reflection of God's own relationship with His church through Jesus Christ. The underlying reality of marriage is not not human marriages, but the marriage between Christ and His church. God made the blueprints for the Christian home what they are to reflect the covenant home that God establishes with his people in Christ. And God makes the blueprints now for marriage specifically what they are so that our marriages too are a reflection of Christ and his church. In the end, it's all about Christ and his church. That's the privilege of marriage. And that's the great privilege we all have as members of the church, whether we are married or whether we are single. I am married to Christ. And by learning about the institution of marriage, I also learn about my relationship with Christ. This is His primary relationship. This is is where a sermon like this is significant for all of us. We are in a one flesh relationship with Christ. And so primary is this relationship that in a sense, Christ doesn't even exist without His church. And the church doesn't exist without Christ. So primary, so intimate is the marriage between Christ and his church that they are one. Just think. Just when God created Adam and he already had in view Eve as his spouse to complete him. That's why God made Adam with a lack. Because he had Eve to fill that lack. Just so, you have Christ And God creates Christ with a view to his bride. And and in a sense, there is a lack in Christ. Until Christ has his bride, the church. She is the fullness of him. And she fills all in all in Christ. She is his fullness. We are bone of his bone. So that you don't have one without the other. And as soon as you say the word Christ, you've already said the word church. That's the one flesh relationship between Christ and his church. And then look at Christ and how he behaves himself for the sake of his marriage to his church. Just think, to establish this marriage bond between Christ and his church, what did Jesus do? Well, he left home. He left the home of his Father in heaven. He left Father so that he could come down to be with his bride. And then what did he do? But he went so far as to lay down his own life on the cross for his bride. So primary was this relationship to Christ that he even endured being utterly forsaken of his father. For the sake of his marriage relationship to the church. For the sake of his marriage to you. Everything that was hers, everything that was yours. Your sin, your debts, your curse, your bridegroom took that upon himself Willingly, and he endured hell. He endured your hell as your husband, as your head, because what was yours became his. That was the intimacy of the marriage bond between Christ and his church. That he came down from heaven to take his church to himself that he might dwell with her in a one flesh relationship. And then consider this Jesus cleaves to his wife. He never forsakes her. He never lets her go. She is his love. She is the apple of his eye and he does everything for her sake. He gives her all his spiritual riches. He clothes her with the finest spiritual jewels that his blood could purchase for her through his death on the cross, which are the highest spiritual jewels that exist. The spiritual blessings of salvation, righteousness, eternal life, Christ and his church live in a one-flesh relationship. And marriage, this earthly uh, institution, God's institution, that is patterned on Christ and his church, marriage is designed to reflect that and to cause us to see more of that and experience more of that in the sanctity and into, in the intimacy of marriage this is the infinite wisdom and goodness of God, that right at the beginning, just as God created the Sabbath day, before there was even any need for redemption, any need for the labors of Christ, He created the Sabbath day and He created marriage right away to teach us about Christ and our relationship to Christ. So then when we talk about the fall into sin, that was no accident. It was man's doing. Man's responsible for it, but it was all in God's decree so that in the way of sin and in the way of grace, God might showcase Himself, His love, His glory, His power, Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. God, the bridegroom of His church, come in the flesh. So we honor the institution of marriage Whether we are single, whether we are married, whatever the world is doing, we honor the institution of marriage. We give God the glory by recognizing marriage as the awesome work of creation that he made it. And then as we go about building a home, we follow those blueprints for our own homes, for our own marriages. This this is, in a sense, the first page of the blueprints, of the manual. How do you build a Christian home? How is God going to establish here a Christian home that we are praying for and that we seek after? Well, it's on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and it's only by God's grace. But He's going to do it by having a marriage that follows His design for marriage. So that when you get old and you look back on the home, that you were privileged to be part of, then there too, you say in that respect too, the Lord built it. Anything in this marriage that is a blessing, that is praiseworthy, that is a joy, it's all of the Lord. It's all through the Lord. In the end, that it might be all to the Lord. And then at the end of it all, what are we left to say? But thank you. Thank you, Lord, for all this. Is of Thee. We see the blessing in our marriages, in the single life, having that marriage to Christ. Thank You, Lord, for the institution of marriage and for Christ and His church. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we beseech Thee, continue to establish in our midst. Homes well-pleasing in thy sight. Maintain, sanctify, build up the homes that thou hast established. Continue to raise up homes that follow thy blueprints. May we in all things be governed by thy word. And Lord, in in all the circumstances of life, may we see the astonishing, perfect, Creation, the work that thou hast done in the marriage relationship between thy son and the church. And may we exalt thy name and taste and see that thou art good as our thoughts turn to all these things. So we pray that this preaching might shape our hearts and shape our lives to thy name's glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.